me introduce William Paul Young, author of The Shack. Thank you. It's been a while since I've been on an actual stage like this. I mean, this is like a theater stage. I love theater. It's, and it's so interesting in, in all the rights conversations that I didn't know about and everything else and the contracts and everything else. I, I kept the theater rights. And, uh, and I did that on purpose because I love theater. I grew up doing theater. I traveled with a, with a traveling drama group that went all over parts of Canada at one point. Did a one-man show at one point, and, uh, and so theater has been in. I was in high school. I was in our town, and I was the, the local preacher's kid, right? I'm a preacher's kid. So they gave me the role. They gave me two roles, the atheist professor and the town drunk. <laughs> And I killed it. <laughs> All that rebellion came out in two, in two roles. So um, I'm, I'm really grateful to be here. Um, spent some time with Jeff today and, and incredibly impressed at what he has done. Um, and uh, the, the theaters that are involved in it and all of that. Is Jeej here? Jeej and Greg, there you are. Is Brittany here? She is not. Uh, okay, I just wanted to say hi. Thank you for being here. You know, our, our conversation is about uh, uh, grace and grief, so I thought I'd tell you my favorite joke. And, uh, you know, some of you know my favorite joke because it's been my favorite joke for a long time. And, uh, but I thought, ah, oh, that's a good way to start. I haven't told that joke for a long time. Um, and it's a, it's a standard a guy, get, a guy gets to heaven joke, right? And he sees the pearly gates. But he's not sure what he's supposed to do. I mean, do you like do you just walk in? And and Peter, who happens to be on, it was his his shift that that day. He sees he sees the consternation on this guy's face, and so he, he walks out to him and, it's, and says, "What's up?" And the guy goes, "Well, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. Do I do I just like walk in?" And Peter goes, "Well, it depends." <laughs> and he goes, "It depends like on what." Uh, it, it depends on how many points you have. You have to have points to get in? He says, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, how many points do you need? He says, you need 100. He says, oh, 100 points. Okay. Um, well, Peter, for the last, you know, 10 years, I've been uh, on Saturday nights, I've been down at the soup kitchen on Saturday evenings, you know, helping with the poor, feeding the poor. Peter goes, Oh, yeah, I'll totally give you a point for that. <laughs> He's like, a point? He says, totally worth a point. He says, well, I, I was a pastor for like 35 years. I mean, I... Negative five points. <laughs> spoken as a pastor. And, and, and he says, 35 years, you know, I only took vacations when, you know. Peter goes, ah, I don't know. He goes, Peter, 35 years. Peter goes, okay, I'll give you a point for that. And he's thinking, I got two points. That's kind of my whole life, and I got two points. And, and, and he's trying to figure out what to do next. And just then, he sees a guy from the same town that he just came from, right? Nice guy, has a little coffee shop, C&E Christian, you know, shows up at Christmas and Easter. And... Um, <laughs> And he walks right past them and in through the pearly gates. And he goes, Peter, are you telling me that 
he's got 100 points? And Peter goes, oh, no, he just doesn't play this game. <laughs> that, that's good. Isn't that a good... Because I, I had the ending all figured out. And it wasn't that. No. No, 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 no. See, I love that. See, that's, I love a... It's got a little bit of a knife to it, you know? <laughs> you know, in, in the one thing or two things that all of human beings have in common, um, amongst many things, I'm sure, but, but two things that are unquestionable is that, that we all know love and we all know loss. And, you, and, if, and if you don't know loss yet, hang around, <laughs> you know? It's, uh, but anybody that's our age, yeah, pretty much. We're, we all know loss. And loss comes in so many different forms. And, um, and in the West, we don't know how to grieve very well. Um, but, but we learn to manage it. We learn to stuff it down. Um, we learn to not talk about it. It's a hidden away kind of thing. Uh, back when I was in, how old was I? I was in my 20s. I read... Um, a, a trilogy by um, Orson Scott Card, who is a science fiction writer. Um, and it was called, um, what was the trilogy called? Anyway, the second of the books um, was call, uh, had to do with this, the books had to do with this order of not religious people. They were, it was an order, like a, like a religious order, but without a real religion associated with it. And they were speakers for the dead. That's, it had risen. And this was in a, in a universe where you had faster than uh, uh, light travel, so you could move between galaxies and other places. And, and, and in this widespread civilization of humanity, you could call for a speaker of the dead. And it may take them a couple months to get there or whatever, um, but you, a speaker for the dead would come. And their job, their, their whole life's work, um, in a given situation, in, in the second book, the situation was that a woman had been married to a man who was abusive and um, had caused huge ripple waves in terms of the devastation of relationship. And when he uh, suddenly died, um, it just like caused her world to, and she didn't know what to do. And so the, a speaker for the dead would show up. Uh, they, she called for one, and it was the main character in this case. And the speaker for the dead would show up, and then the, the, the work of that speaker was then to embed themselves into that community. And, and in the universe, it was understood that they would have access to all records they could talk to anyone they wanted to, and they would build um, an, an understanding of who this person who died was in the context of, of all the relationships and all of their own history. And, and um, so in the storyline, he's actually there for a few years working on all of this information. And then what the speaker would do is that he would, he would call that he was ready to speak on behalf of the dead. And the entire community would gather together and, and he, would, he would stand up inside this community and begin to unravel this person's life so that they could actually 
comprehend and it would bring closure and understanding and allow people to grieve because losses don't just happen in one spot they ripple into our lives right anybody that you know grief you know that it comes in waves yeah and it's just like and, and you can't tell when the waves are coming um, they'll just show up and then in between the troughs sometimes you feel nothing like numb like nothing and um, and so the speaker for the dead would be someone who would bring up about some sense of reconciliation for the life of this person fascinating idea and I just finished reading it when one of Kim's uncles and uh, Kim's I'm married to Kim and one of Kim's uncles passed away and the family turned to me and said would you do the speaking at the memorial service and I just had been buried inside of this book and this concept and so I had like three days and I knew that because he had been I, I well I knew certain things about him I knew that he'd caused a, a, quite a bit of wreckage in his life and if there's anything if there's any time in our lives where lies should never be told it's at a memorial service or a funeral right? and um, and so in the context of all this, I spent three days talking to family. I knew that he had two daughters that were coming that were completely estranged from him. I knew that there was, you know, this wreckage at the surface level, right? And so I began talking to his, his family, his sisters, all one-on-one, -on -one, you know, just tell me, tell me this, tell me this, and for over three days. And then at the, at the service, I stood up and I spoke on behalf of the dead. It was unbelievable what happened inside that. Things, I was able to tell his daughters things that they didn't even know about him, right? All this stuff that has been hidden. And you know, our parents' generation, they weren't very forthright, you know? Um, our, a lot of our fathers, they didn't know how to love very well, but they knew how to do duty very well. And so they tended to show up. And, uh, but, and there was always this hidden world um, and a non-disclosed world. Well, we don't talk about that, that kind of thing. And um, over the course of a good period of this hour, I was able to speak on his behalf. And afterwards, some of Kim's own family came up and said, when I die, would you do my service? <laughs> right? And, um, and it was just one of those events in my life that just told me about the sanctity of the thin place to use the celtic expression the thin place this little thin space between life and death and it is a thin place um some of you know this story uh, my my family lives mostly in central bc in uh, okanagan and um when we first came back from new guinea uh, after saskatoon in the middle of winter we, after being sick for six months, um, Saskatoon was wild. I'm 10 years old, right, coming back into the West, and I've got, you know, shorts, and uh, it's the middle of winter in Saskatoon. That's, that's when we went to our first um, mall. Never been to a mall, never seen a mall. Eh, coolest place ever, right? Because they have these rooms where the doors just open up, 
You push a button, the door opens up, you go in, it closes, it opens up again, and you're a totally different person. I mean, we didn't want to go anywhere near that because you could come out really old, you could come out, you know, it was wild. And then um, and, and, an African-American man came through the mall, and there are four of us, I'm the oldest, and, and uh, there were four of us, and we saw someone who looked like home, right? Because we grew up in a brown culture. And so we were on him. We got away from our folks, and we jumped him. And we started talking to him in Donnie, our dialect. And he, he didn't answer us. He looked confused. He's like, and we're, we're asking him, why aren't you talking to us? In Donnie, of course. And, and he thinks he's been attacked by four Pentecostal kids, is what he thinks, you know? <laughs> These are white kids talking something, right? And, um, but that's how disconnected we were. And then, and then the next place we moved was um, to my grandparents' house on Rose Avenue, right across from the hospital in Kelowna. And then, um, um, so my family eventually settled in the Vernon area, and um, that's where my mom and dad were for years. And eventually, that means I graduated from in Terrace. We'd lived in lots of places, you know. Between 10 and, and graduating high school, I went to 13 different schools. So my dad was an itinerant pastor for different uh, denominations. You know what I've, at supper, what I figured out today? For every four words in the English New Testament, we have one denomination. He was really excited when he found that out. Think about that. We can divide people over four words. I mean, we can start a whole institutional religious system every four words. That's kind of sick, yeah? I mean, it's like, maybe we should try something else. This is not working very well, you know? So um, anyway, that's my big insight for the day. And um, so, um, so in Vernon, um, my, my parents live downstairs. My sister, Debbie, and her husband live upstairs. And, and um, Debbie's a nurse. My mom was a nurse. Um, my mother-in-law was a nurse. I have a daughter-in-law who's a nurse. And so nurses play real significant roles in my books. And um, as I've said, you know, they've come to save us from doctors anyway. So, so <laughs> nurses are, uh, so my, my mom was taken care of. My dad showed up for her, you know, really did over the last 10, 15 years. My mom passed away two years ago on New Year's Eve day. And uh, she was 90 years old. And uh, I told somebody the other night, you know, the last words that she said to me. Right? She has a funny look on her face as she's laying in her bed. And, and I go, what, Mom? She goes, you're my son. Who'd have thought? <laughs> and there you have it. <laughs> my response was, you're exactly right. Like, who, who would have thought, yeah? So... Anyway, she knows me better now. Um, the, uh, but there, there was, uh, Debbie says, you gotta, I gotta tell you this story because there's this um, South African doctor who lives in town. And uh, he's, he's become part of our little small group. And, and uh, you gotta come meet him. So I, I went one night to the little small group and we're all sitting around. We should start telling stories because, you know, that's a great thing to do. So we're telling stories and, and the doctor says, I have a story for you. He says, um, 
You know, um, I moved from South Africa. I have no religious background at all. You know, and, you know, uh, and he's, a, he's um, a, a white South African. A lot of South African doctors have moved to, into Canada. And, um, and he says, so, but on my journey from South Africa back to, or to Canada, um, I, had, I had a spiritual encounter that I was convinced was Jesus. And, uh, but I've never, I've never really gone to church or anything. I know that people pray because they always talk about it. I've seen it in the hospital and stuff. And so I, I got this little nudge and I decided, you know what, I'm an on, I'm, uh, he said, I'm a specialist in geriatric oncology. So a lot of cancer patients who are in elderly, right? And uh, so he says, I deal with death and dying a lot. And, um, and he says, um, so I decided that when someone was very close to death, that I would, I'd slip into their room and I'd just lay my hands on them and I would pray for them. But he said, I really didn't know what to say. And, and so I would, I, it would be something really simple like, God, I, I pray that you would help this person through this time of transition. Something like that. Very simple, amen. You know, that's it. And so he said there was this one woman, and uh, he said this was about a year ago, and there was about, there's this one woman who, um, um, she was close. She was very close. She was down to two respirations a minute, right? So very close. But his shift was over. So he decided right before he, he left for home, um, he would go in and pray for her. And he walks into her room. But her family had arrived, and they had gathered around her bed. So they were right around her bed. So he just simply drew the curtain that half the room, right? He drew the curtain, and then he walks over to the corner of the room, and he does his little prayer. Like, I can't, and he didn't want to interrupt them, and it's kind of a holy time. It's a very, it's sacred ground time, really. And so he just does his little prayer, God, you know, very whispered, very quiet. And, um, and they had no idea he'd even been there. And then he slips back out of the room, goes down to the nurse's station, and says, can I have her paperwork? And he signs all the paperwork so that they can just put in time of death, TOD. And he says, just put in the time of death, and I'm going home. So he goes home. Next morning, he shows up, and he's doing his rounds. And he pops his head into that room just to see if there's who's there, because you know, expecting that somebody new would be there. Same woman. And she looks up at him and goes, <laughs> and he walks over to her and goes, what? She goes, that was the worst prayer I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> she says, so I asked God if I could stay an extra day and teach you how to pray. <laughs> and he says as he tears up, she spent a day teaching me how to pray. Hmm. And the next day she passed. Wow. Right? So there is this, Death seems so final to us, yeah? And it is final in the sense of there becomes an absence, and we, and we go into a process in which we begin to, to build a new normal, you know, with this space that is missing. Because you can't go back. You know, you can't recapture. 
in, there's lots of facets about um, the process of lamenting and the process of grieving. And unfortunately, in the West, a lot of times, you have about six weeks. That's, that's kind of what people sort of expect. You know, kind of, okay, it's been like six weeks. It's time to get over it, you know, that kind of thing. The psychology now has begun to say that you can sort of expect about three years. Three years where you're still in the waves. You know, and in fact, sometimes the third year is sort of the worst. Because all of your systems to cope and things like that come into play for the first while. And then something begins to, your, your, your systems begin to lose their ability to, to withhold the things that you have not talked about or faced or those, you know, there's all these elements to it. And, um, and so part of what I just wanted to say to you tonight, because I know that in a room like this, there are people grieving in this room. In a room like this, almost everyone has been touched by cancer in, in terms of relationship, in terms of someone you know, someone you care about, some kind of accident. Some of you who ha have had the loss of your, of your own child, which to, to me, and, and psychology now agrees that the greatest loss a human being can experience is the loss between a parent and a child. And it's so interesting to me that that is the one loss that God knows most intimately. Hmm. And, and it's, it is a huge disruption and a cataclysmic emptiness. You know, to have, to have a broken heart and empty arms, you know? And, um, and so I'm, I'm, part of what I want to say is give yourself some grace. And uh, I grew up in a, in a modern evangelical, I'm a missionary kid, preacher's kid, so, you know, I, I was, I'm part of the community that always had all the answers. You know, and, and, and because we didn't know how to face our own mortality and our own fear and our own death, then we, we responded from the head and said all kinds of stupid things with the best of intentions. And I don't know if you've experienced, some of you have experienced where people, you know, they want to say that it was part of God's will or they, they, they you know, it, they want to say that it was ordained or they, and they're going like, well, they're in a better place. Who gives a shit, right? I'm serious. And because in that moment, all you know is they're not here, yeah? And there comes a point where we have to begin to embrace the process of this because it isn't just an event. It is a process. And it's like, but, uh, you know, when, how many of you have seen the movie, The Shack? Oh, good, 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 good. There's a lot of unbelievably beautiful things in that film. And, um, <clears throat> and I, I didn't expect to be involved, but I got absolutely enfolded in by Lionsgate, by Gil Netter Productions, Gil and his wife Lonnie, <clears throat> by Stuart Hazeldean, the director. I got to be on set. I'm in a cameo. It lasts like two, two seconds. But, <clears throat> <clears throat> but if you look, you will see uh, kind of an older, balding, short, white guy. <laughs> Walking behind Tim McGraw through, through, through the neighborhood, and 
Mr. Rogers. Yeah, really. It was so great. And um, so, um, but one of, the, one of the things that happened on set, well, two of them, I'll tell you two of them because they relate to this topic. One of them was, because you don't shoot a movie in sequence, yeah? It's all shot depending on when the actors are available and when the sets, are, the locations are available. And so um, they are shooting different things at different times and later the editors will begin to amass all of this and you know, even when they shoot a scene, they're gonna shoot it 10, 15, 20 times. And so usually you're doing one scene all morning, take a break for lunch, one scene all afternoon, all that. And um, one of the scenes is when Mackenzie is bringing the body of Missy down from the mountain. And uh, so Stuart, who plays Mackenzie, he's a very serious actor. And, he, and um, I got to, in fact, I got a call from Lionsgate. And Lionsgate said, Paul, would you, would you consider coming on the first day shoot and praying a blessing over the entire cast and crew? Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And um, so I got to do that. That's the day that at the end of the day, Gil goes, hey, Paul, you want to be in a cameo? <laughs> right? I'm going like, because I had no rights and no creative control. But I'd gotten to look, they asked me to look at the script. They asked me to be involved in talking about the actors, who, who would be good, all that kind of stuff, yeah? So I, I'm going like, cameo? Like, uh, like in the movie Cameo? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, I've never done a book adaptation, and the author was alive, that I didn't put the author in the movie somewhere. <laughs> it was good to know I was alive. And uh, so, so I, I said, sure. I'm thinking, my kids, they're going to love this. I wish they were here, you know. And, and I said, what do I have to do? He said, it's very simple. In the scene between, in this shoot, shot between Mackenzie and Willie, um, all you have to do is walk. Rock, just, you're in the neighborhood. You're just walking through the neighborhood. That's it. Piece of cake. I've walked my whole life, almost. Yeah? Thinking like, ah, easy. The problem is, I, I normally I don't think about walking. And, and now I'm thinking about walking. And it's like, oh my god, I don't know how to walk. I mean, and, and oh, it only took five takes. I'm serious. <laughs> but when you see that two seconds, it's like the best walking. You know, if, they, if they had an Oscar for walking, I would, I would be in the running. It was such good walking. So Sam, he's a serious actor. And, he's, and he says to, about the scene where he's bringing the body of Missy down. And here's one of the, one of the things that, is absolutely astounding to me about the nature and character of God is that God works purpose inside all the choices that human beings are, are making without coercion. Because if God coerces someone's will one time, then, then the whole cosmos changes. And we would like that, frankly. In fact, one of the reasons that God is so disappointing is that he, he just doesn't take charge the way we want him to, right? And it's, it's, we don't want to admit that we're kind of pissed off at God, but it's like, where were you, you know? Of course, we, that's not what we say. We say, um, 
thank you for, your, for this food. Uh, may it bless our bodies. Amen. That's what we say. You know, not very honest. We don't, we're, you know, because you don't want to tell God the truth. I mean, you know. So, it's, uh, like it might offend him. Well, the God that I grew up with, he would have been offended and sent me to hell. That's what happened to me. You know? But, but Sam comes, here's, here's, but the weaving of the purposes of God are inside seven billion people's choices that are being made on a daily basis, plus the entire history of humanity and, and what we've brought to the table. I mean, think about that, you know? And so we don't have a God who is in control in the sense of some kind of grim determinism here, or you don't have any love. Love says your no actually matters. And so I'm going to submit to your no, but I'm going to work inside it to move you in the direction of wholeness. Yeah? Stunning. Sam, this kind of rebellious Aussie boy um, who'd become an actor, um, whose, whose church background was a little exposure to hellfire and damnation, in which he said, forget that, yeah? And so he arrives on the first day's shoot, the, the day one I met him, and, and he wanted to ask me all these questions about McKenzie and stuff, right? But he walked on set with a 10-week, not, he didn't have the, his baby boy with him, but his first child was 10 weeks old. And he's now playing the role of a father who loses a child. Right? And... Um, so Sam, as they're getting ready to shoot the scene where he's bringing Missy's body down, he says to Gil, Netter, he says, because he's been thinking this through, right? He says, so Gil, he said, you know this scene, I think by this point in the movie, Mackenzie is, um, he has a resolution. That is, he's had closure. He's seen Missy through the waterfall, so he has an assurance of the fact that Missy is okay. He's dealt with the issue of forgiveness in regard to his dad. He's even begun to grasp the issue of forgiveness for the perpetrator, which is a wrenching process, right? He, he hasn't got to forgiveness for himself quite yet, but I mean, I mean it's all wrapped in there. So, he's, so, so Sam says, so I'm gonna play this, you know, basically unemotionally, it's closure, and Gil's telling me about this, and Gil says, so I just smile and I go, yeah, you do that. Yeah, go ahead. So they get the shot ready, and in comes Sam, and he falls completely apart. I mean, he goes down on his knees, he can't control his emotions, he is just bawling. And he goes, let's do that again. <laughs> Ten times, and he couldn't control his emotional response. He would start, and he would just completely fall apart. So in that scene, when you watch it, and I've, I've, been, I've, I've thanked God so many times that Sam was so overcome with emotion because that scene has been a catalyst for so many people who have told me that scene allowed me to grieve. Yes. He has a real sense of where Missy is, yes. But that doesn't resolve the grief. And he needs to feel it. And he needs to feel it to the core of his being. 
I mean, and it's a wrenching scene. I can't see that scene without bawling. So the other part of that is that then they take, they take Missy's body, Jesus, and, and he puts it into the, the casket, yeah? And Joseph Nemec, who is a set designer, hand-built that casket. He's a woodworker. And he had, he had asked God way back when he first read The Shack, he had said, if this is ever made into a movie, would you please let me be the set designer? And they actually gave the job to a guy in New York. And a couple weeks before they started the shoot in, Van in Vancouver, um, in British Columbia, the guy bailed on it for a, a project that he thought was probably going to be better, right? And they were kind of in a, at a loss. Who's going to be the set designer and all this? And, and they, somebody went, wait, Joseph Nemec is, lives in Vancouver, BC. And they, so they contacted him, and he said, well, let me think about it. No, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so he became the set designer, and so he puts all of this love. So the first day on the set that I was there, Joseph and I became friends, and he started sh secretly sending me all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff, you know? And uh, it was so beautiful. And, but he handcrafted this, and if you remember, there's along the side of it and across the top of it, there's a whole series of butterflies, right? that are going across this. And it's um, so also in the side of it, there's a ladybug carved in it. And, and, but you have this, this transformational insect, right? Now, you know what I learned about butterflies? I didn't know this until just a couple months ago, a few months ago. And that is, I've always thought, in my mind, that little caterpillar that's going around eating everything and then builds this little cocoon and stuff, that that caterpillar inside the cocoon begins to transform and turns into a butterfly, right? That's how I thought about it. Do you know what actually happens? That caterpillar disintegrates. It has a cellular deconstruction. It becomes a soup inside the cocoon. And then out of that soup, the cells begin to differentiate and create this butterfly. Isn't that amazing, right? So it's like, all the constituent parts are there at a cellular level, but it's got to it's got to transform from this thing, where it keeps it keeps its ontology. That is, it keeps its being, the truth of its being, but it becomes something that is an expression of that being that is absolutely distinct from what it was. There's a sermon in there somewhere. I just know it, right? <laughs> so. One of the set locations is where they built the garden, which was up in the mountains um, outside of Vancouver. And they found a place, and they actually hand-planted that entire garden. You know, when, that, when it zooms out, they planted that. I mean, wow. they, they, they did this whole thing, and then they restored it back. You, couldn't, you, you would never be able to tell where that thing was. But, but they built this. And, and um, so the scene that they shot was um, where they are burying the body, the casket, into the place. And if you remember in the, in the garden scene, is that Sarayu invites Mackenzie to go dig up a section of the garden. And it's a beautiful flower patch. And, um, and, he's, and he doesn't understand that he's working inside of his own soul. But his memories of his daughter have established a beautiful spot and it's that spot that has to be dug up 
right? Because that's where they're going to bury the body so that a new tree of life can emerge that is also planted with his tears. I mean, the, the picture of this is so fantastic. Um, thank you, Holy Spirit. We will have more, please. So, so all of this is happening, and they've just, Sarayu has taken the vial of tears and poured it on the ground, and, and up from, from this now barren patch that was all of his stored memories within his own memory bank of his daughter. And it had to be, it had to be just removed so that he could move, he could move on. And, and so she pours out, up comes this tree of life. And they're standing there, Father, Son, Mackenzie, Holy Spirit, the, the four of them. Now you have to understand, that's on this side of the camera. On this side of the camera, there's like 30 people. There's all the plant people, the lighting people, the sound people, the technicians, the grips, the, you know? There's lots of people here up in the mountain at this shoot. So they set up the shot. They're going to shoot this. They say, roll. When you watch the movie, you will just assume that it's special effects. But as they're standing there, suddenly out of the woods comes this large butterfly, and it flies into the shot and lands on Mackenzie's nose. It's not CGI. It happened in the shot. Of all, listen, of all the people that were there, it's not like Mackenzie had some special stuff that would attract <laughs> butterflies, you know? But of, and you don't train a butterfly, you know? Of all the people for that butterfly to come into the shot and land on, and when you see the look of surprise on Sam's face, that's because he is absolutely stunned. And, and um, Sumi, who plays the Holy Spirit, and Aviv, who plays Jesus, and Octavia, who plays Papa, they all stayed in character, and that's the shot that you see in the film is the one where that butterfly comes in. They added, they did add a little shot of a butterfly to give some context, right? So you'll see a little, that's fake, but you'll see this little shot of a butterfly that who knows where they got that from. But, but then the scene itself, that butterfly is absolutely real. <laughs> one of those kisses of grace, you know? Oh, what a coincidence. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, you will find in the context of grief that there will be times and moments where unexpected grace shows up. That's one thing. The other thing that's really important is that people on the outside will not comprehend the grace that is given to those who are grieving, not from the outside, right? And part of what, part of, Part of what we get to do, even in the midst of our grief, is to extend grace to those who don't know how to respond to it. They don't know how to step inside our place. The best thing you can ever do is to just be present inside of someone's loss. You know, use words when necessary, <laughs> you know. Um, but most of the time, it's just presence. Because, because death is a symbol of an event of separation. It's not real separation, but it sure feels like it. And, and we're so connected to the physical reality and the material world that, that, that we think death 
is the definer of everything, where it's not. But, but we grieve not just the events and surrounding circumstances around death, but around loss in general, right? Marriage, a loss of a friendship, a loss of mental illness, you know? And um, people have asked me, uh, you know, you wrote this book for your kids? <laughs> and how old were they? Well, our youngest was 12 at the time. And he said, so you write a book for your kids as a gift about a serial killer who abducts and murders a little girl. Are you okay? <laughs> and they go like, why? And I said, well, you know, what Kim had asked me to do is to write a story. Or she didn't even say that. She just said, write something. Because later she said, I was thinking four to six pages. But, <laughs> but write something as a gift for our children that would put in one place how I think. And I'm, I come from a very theological, religious world. And my, I don't remember not thinking about God. I just don't have that memory, right? Um, yeah, I've thought all kinds of things about God, but I, it's always been a very central thread in my life. And I pursued it because um, I had a real inclination toward uh, angst and depression and, and that. And, and it's like, I need meaning. I need something that matters. And, and if, it, if it doesn't exist in the realm of there being a God, I don't know where to look because it didn't take me long to deal with philosophy of materialism to know that it was absolutely bankrupt, right? And, and same with a lot of other philosophical positions. It's like, so you just, you just make up meaning? That's what you do? You know? So, so how can you say it's wrong to, to kill someone? It's just like convenient or it's just like, you know, it's a, it's a way that we can keep our society going so that you can get more money. Or what's the deal here? You understand what I'm saying? And then the evolutionary biology as a basis for materialism was like, great, that sounds just like my church. You know, instead of a piece of crap, you're a, you're a piece of slime, you know, trying to emerge your way out of the, you know, the, the abyss of unicellular you know, organisms, you know, but, but it, you, you, make, you make meaning whatever you want it, want it to be. And it's like, that's bankrupt. There's, there is nothing there. And that means that any sense of love or joy and all that stuff is just mythological. And you know what? Even those who in their minds hold to that in their longings don't. I, I have a friend who, this is a great story. You like stories? I hope you like stories. Some of you have heard a lot of my stories. Um, but uh, I have a friend who went on eBay and bought an atheist soul for $504. You know the auction thing online? Well, there's an atheist selling his soul, Hemet Mehta. He was selling his soul, and he said for every 10 bucks somebody bought, you know, paid for his soul, he'd spend an hour in the church of their choice. That was the deal. So my friend, who's an ex-pastor, he'd rather paint houses than preach. And, uh, but he... He went online, and he does stuff like this. Jim is his name. And Jim bought Hemet Meta's soul for $504. That's a recession. And um, <laughs> just atheist souls do not go for what they used to, let me tell you. So, 
So then, then Hemet, who has a job, started getting into conversation. Well, Hemet has a best friend named Matt Casper. And Matt Casper and, and Hemet were talking about this deal that Hemet had got out for 504 bucks. And Jim was involved in that conversation. And, and Casper, Matt, he says, would it be OK if I'd, I kept Hemet's agreement? Right, because he's got a job and a family and stuff like this. And, and, uh, and I, he says, and I'm, I've got a job, but I'm independent of it, and I can, I can do this. So Jim and Matt went to churches all over the United States of every sort, high church, low church, very rigid churches, very Pentecostal churches. And they wrote a book together called um, uh, Jim and Casper Go to Church. <laughs> and you can get it in your Christian bookstore, right? And, um, and so they wrote a book, and, and it was about an atheist perspective of what he was seeing and a ex-pastor's perspective of what was going on in all these different churches. So Jim wanted me to meet Matt, because we're friends, and I wrote The Shack and all this stuff. And, and Matt had read The Shack, and he loved it, right? So yeah, my, my viewpoint about atheism, it's halfway to Jesus from religion, so just so you know. So, so I have people that go like, my son, he's become an atheist. I'm going like, thank God, you know? Because <laughs> I know where you come from, you know? From my people. And so you got, and any movement spiritually toward truth has got to go through atheism. You have to deny the God you thought existed, right? Even if it's for a very short period of time, you've got to say, I don't believe that God, the one who tortures babies and, you know, sorry. And um, so... So um, I was speaking at a, a big book thing, fair or something in San Diego. And, and Jim uh, was down there, and Matt came to meet me. And so um, Matt comes up, and the first thing he says to me is, you know that I'm an unbeliever, right? And I went, no, you're not. He goes, yeah, I am. I said, no, you're not. I am so. I mean, he's like kind of upset that... And I'm going like, I said, look, belief is actually an activity, not a category. I said, and, and I'm part of the group of people that made those categories up, right? So, I mean, we're still looking for the believe-a-meter. You know that little, <laughs> you know the little gadget? I don't know if you put it on your head or your heart, but it, it has a little arm, and it tells you whether you believed enough to be in, you know? So, but, but nobody even tells you if it's like 62% or 84% or and I'm telling him all this. And he's looking at me like, he goes, what are you talking about? I go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, forget that. I, I, I said, I do have a question. I said, here's what I want to know. What do you actually believe in? Tell me something you believe in. He goes, you want to know what I believe in? He said, nobody ever asked me what I believe in. They always ask me what I don't believe in. I said, well, no, no, I'm actually interested in what you actually believe in. Okay. You know what? I think this would resolve so many conflicts if you actually wanted to know what somebody actually believes in rather than what the points of disagreement are. Because you can start there and actually build something. Otherwise, you're trying to, you know, you end up fighting over somebody's sense of what an ideology is or an idea is, right? 
So I said, no, I want to know. So he thinks about it, and then he says this. And I've had this happen two distinct times with people who are either agnostic, strongly agnostic, or atheistic, where I've asked them about what they believe in. And, um, and he says, I'll tell you what I believe in. I believe in the love that I have for my sons. I said, really? Tell me about that. What kind of love is that? Because obviously it's not romantic love. He said, no, no, it's, he said, he said, Paul, I did not know I had the capacity to love like this until I had my own children. I would die for them. And it's totally irrational. But I, if, if somebody pointed a gun at them, I would step in between and take the bullet. He said, I said, so could you maybe, could I define this kind of love as other-centered, self-giving, sacrificial love? And he goes, that's exactly what it is. You know what the Greek word for that is? Agape. And, and so he's just told me that he believes in agape. And the, and the, and the scripture is, God is agape. Other-centered, self-giving, sacrificial love. Right? And, and so we talk about that a bit. And then I say, well, tell me about what, what do you think about life? You know? What do you think about life? And Jim had told me one thing about Matt is that he loves quantum theory. And he loves the elegance of the natural order, right? So I just, I just lit the match, and he went off. And he's telling me about the incredible, you know, like it's... It's almost too beautiful to even think that this could happen by chance kind of stuff, you know? And, um, and so for about 15 minutes, he just riffs on this. And then I said, I, I got one more question for you. I know you love your sons. Could somebody relate to you in such a way that is apt to your sons in a way that is wrong? It's just wrong. And he says, absolutely. Absolutely. And I said, so, I said, Matt, look. You told me you're a non-believer, but so far you told me you believe in love. Not just any kind of love, but other-centered, self-giving, sacrificial love. You believe in life. And you believe in truth. And you're trying to convince me you're an unbeliever. He says, I know what you're doing. <laughs> We talked for another hour, like about an hour, and Jim's there the whole time. And then Matt has to leave, and he, he gives me a big, long hug, and he whispers something to me that Jim overhears. And Matt walks away, and Jim turns to me and he says, Paul, that was the greatest compliment I've ever heard Matt Casper give another human being. You know what he said to me? He's hugging me, and he says, I want you to know that I'm just thrilled that you exist. He's saying, I think I believe in you, right? And I'm going like, come on, yeah? So um, a couple of years later, I get an email from Matt, and he says, so Jim and I are writing a new book. It's called Saving Casper. And he says, just so you know, I'm still an unbeliever, whatever, you know, whatever. But um, Jim and I would like you to write the foreword. Would you write the foreword for me? 
I'm going like, uh, yeah, I never get asked by an atheist to write a foreword. <laughs> and so I write this really great foreword. I mean, it was so beautiful. And I send it to Jim and Matt, and they loved it. And they sent it to their Christian publisher, who didn't like it at all. <laughs> and in fact, they rewrote it. And when they rewrote it and sent it back, I, did, I couldn't tell who wrote it. And, I, and so it made me laugh. I'm sitting there going like, this is really funny. I mean, they took out the whole first paragraph, and, and I can kind of understand that. But <laughs> I'll tell you in a minute what I wrote in the first paragraph. But, but so, I mean, all of this stuff. And, and, and so I, I sent an email to Matt and, and uh, to Jim, and I go like, you know, maybe I'm not the best person to do this for you. Um, you, you might be better off anyway if I'm not the one who wrote the foreword. And, and I, said, I said, look, uh, and I'm not offended whatsoever. Jim knows me, and he knows me really well, and he knew that. He knew that I was just laughing about this. Matt thinks that I've been offended, right? And he's very sensitive about this on my behalf. And he sends me one of the most beautiful little notes of conciliation that you can imagine. And, I mean, and in it, he says, Paul, I, we love your forward. Is there any way that we can find some space to compromise with the publisher? Because you've got to keep in mind that we're dealing with Christians. It's baby steps. <laughs> it's baby steps. I'm, I'm, oh my gosh. So I, I rewrote it in such a way that it passed, at least barely passed muster. But, and it still was beautiful. But the first line of the first paragraph, which is probably what got me into trouble, I said, if Calvin and Luther were right, nothing like in bringing in the big guns of somebody that I disagree like 80% of what they said. But if, because the Reformation began with this, if Calvin and Luther were right, that forgiveness precedes confession and repentance. That was the statement of the Reformation. Forgiveness is before. In fact, if you haven't been forgiven, you have no capacity to either confess or change. Right? Which was absolutely contrary from what had become instilled in the Catholic world, where you go through confession and then you repentance and then get, you get forgiveness. Now, we've gone back to that. My people have, anyway. But I said, if Calvin and Luther were right, that forgiveness precedes confession and repentance, then it follows that forgiveness precedes belief. Hmm. That was my first sentence. And I think that's what freaked them out. Because <laughs> the publisher were, they were my people. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's why it had to be reworked. Um, but again, you know, People said, so you wrote this book about this, this topic. Why did you pick this scenario? And, and frankly, I thought about, when I was doing this, I'm thinking, like, why am I picking this scenario? Well, it's because it's the greatest loss. And it asks the best questions. Because I've got kids, and I don't want kids growing up with the God that I did. The God that you couldn't ask any questions to or about, right? I want them to be able to ask the really hard questions <clears throat> and, and work their way through them. So I picked the worst situation and then built from that. And I'm so glad that I did. 
because it is such a deep loss, it picked up all kinds of other losses. If I'd have just gone to cancer, which was one thought, it wouldn't have picked this up. This is way below that, right? And so it picked it up. And, um, and, it's, it, and it's important. Um, and people would say, you know, are, is this a true story? I'm going like, yeah, it's true. It's just not real. But it's, it's like a parab parable. Parables are all true. They're just not real. And I said, and they'll go like, you're Mackenzie, right? I say, yeah, um, but I'm Missy too. Hmm. They go, what? There was a woman, Leanne Stewart, Nashville, wrote me soon after the book came out. She put it the best that anybody ever has. And she wrote me a note. She said, you know what? I don't know who you are. I don't know anything about you. But my sense is that Missy represents something murdered in you as a child, probably your innocence. And Mackenzie is you as the adult trying to deal with it. I showed it to Kim. She goes, boy, she nailed it. You know? So uh, we've had the losses in our life. I mean, when Kim and I were first married, less than a year, um, Chad had been born. Chad was born four days from our first anniversary. Kim says, best anniversary gift I've ever gotten in my life. No. But Chad was probably six months old, and we entered a six-month period of really intense loss. Um, first, my 18-year-old brother Stephen was killed. Three months later, Kim's mom at 59, Shirley, went into the hospital for routine gallbladder surgery, had a massive coronary on the table, and, and died over three days. And three months after Shirley died, my five-year-old niece, Jennifer, was killed in Vernon the day after her fifth birthday. Three shock losses. So Jennifer, the five-year-old, is part of that persona. But five-year-old, five years old is when I, is my earliest memories of sexual abuse. And that's the loss of the innocence. And that's, uh, that got shut down, and it took me a lot of years before I was willing to grieve that loss. Yeah? And that grief doesn't just leave. It sits there. As a result of those kinds of losses, I buried a whole bunch of stuff. I disassociated a whole bunch of stuff. You know, between, between that kind of loss and the, and, and the fury of my father. You know, the ripple effect into my life was really significant. And, um, and so when I was creating Missy, I was wrapping up my own, my own child. Because when I wrote The Shack, I, it was the year I turned 50. And it was the first time in my life I felt like finally I'd become a child. Because I had no memory of being a child. You know, my memories were all wrapped up in survival. Hey, Paul? I'm trying to figure things out. Go ahead. Yeah. Can we come back to this right after a break? Yes. Because... This is a great stop at that point. Yeah. Yes, because... We'll start with the questions after. Yep, we'll get to them. Probably, probably not. <laughs> no, that's okay. We'll get to one. What's, what's really funny is you're ending with my very first and probably a really important one. Because when you started tonight, you began talking about the permission to grieve. Because many people do not have the permission. They've been, they've been told they've got to follow the five stages of grief. And it happens this way. And they, there's no concept. Yeah. And so I, I want to dig into something. Because something you told me last week, I want to share with this group and I want you to explain it. Okay. Let's, let's come back to that. Five minute, or sorry, a 15 minute break. Um, we'll just take, take a little bit of time. Leave the live stream running. 
And um, let's just take a break. Thanks. Hope you brought your sleeping bags. <laughs>